What a beautiful day, huh? Hasn't, we have not had smoke-free days in a while. It just felt great yesterday and today to go outside and not have my eyes tear up and my throat close up. And what a couple years it's been, <laughs> I'll tell you. Like we're getting it from all sides. Makes you wonder what God's up to, huh? Think he's up to something? Yeah, I don't know. So how many of you have realized that Cornerstone Boulder is not your typical church? You know, when someone from Cornerstone moves away, we often get asked, do you know of a church like Cornerstone in Dallas or Phoenix or wherever city they're moving to? And we always say, no, we don't know of a church like Cornerstone anywhere on the planet. And the truth is, we never set out or had a strategy to be different. So shortly after I first arrived here in Colorado 27 years ago, our church got together uh, for a Friday evening and all day Saturday to see if we could come up with a five-year vision plan. It seemed like a good idea. I mean, isn't that what churches do? So that's what we did. But it turned out to be a horrible weekend. I mean, filled with disunity and turmoil or conflict and in the end, we couldn't find agreement on who we wanted to be when we grew up. And I made a vow that day that we would never do anything like that again, and we never have. Instead, we made a pact together just to let the Holy Spirit be the navigator of this church. I love, I love the fact that that song ended up being the last song. We didn't plan it for what was in my sermon. Um, but we just decided to let the Holy Spirit lead us and we would simply be the passengers going along for the ride. The prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 4.6, Not by power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. King Solomon wrote in Psalm 127 verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, the, labor, the builders labor in vain. And in a way, operating like this is kind of challenging because one of the questions we often get when a visitor shows up is, I'd love to get together and hear Cornerstone's five-year vision plan. And I'm glad I'm not in that kind of leadership role anymore because all I have to say now is, well, you probably want to talk to Brian about that. <laughs> he loves talking about that. By the way, if you don't know, the building, this building, was given to us in 1999, absolutely debt-free. So they just gave us the title to the building, one of the many blessings that we've experienced by letting God lead. I could probably do 30 minutes just on that alone. And had we, had we relied on our power or our might, we might have not been positioned correctly to receive such an awesome gift, but we were. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Anyway, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, well, actually eight years ago up in Winter Park, the leaders of Cornerstone went on a retreat together, not to look forward, but to look backward in an attempt to discern the unique way that God had led our church over the years. And at that retreat, we began to put descriptive words to what we saw as patterns of development. And in the end, we landed on nine descriptive words that we collectively call the elements that make up Cornerstone. Just like you can't have water unless it's built on the two elements of hydrogen and oxygen, there's really no Cornerstone boulder without these nine elements. For us, it all comes down to chemistry. 
Nine amazing, extraordinary elements that when combined together, create one amazing, extraordinary church. Well, last Sunday, Brian taught on the first element, and there's no particular order about these, but he taught on the element um, of transformation, the value of engaging in the process of becoming whole, healthy followers of Jesus. And today, I'm going to talk about the second element, which is confluence, the value of connecting the dots between the Jewish scriptures and culture and the Christian scriptures and culture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the traditions of both uh, Jews and Christians. The word confluence is, is defined as the merging together of two streams into one. And we merge these two streams together here at Cornerstone in three ways. Number one, we tell one story. Number two, we teach one context. And number three, we keep one calendar. And we're going to take a look at all three of the ways that we merge these streams together. So let's look at this first one. We tell one story. And I'd like to start by, by you just imagining God in eternity past. However that shows up in your mind, God's in eternity past. You know, maybe he's floating or sitting on a throne or something, you know. Just kind of picture him there. There's no universe yet created. There's no earth yet created. No plant life, no animal life, no humans. There's only the eternal God who has always existed and will always exist. And if you just camp on that for a while, it'll make your brain start to smoke. Like, who created God? Nobody created him. He's always existed. Well, okay. And we know that love is at the core of God's existence. If you have to describe the one characteristic that defines God, it's love. God is love. Dios es amor. Elohim Aheva. Shangdi Osha. Let's get this. Josha Ai. Anybody speak Chinese? Did I get that right? Nobody? Okay. Good. I got it right. Okay. It doesn't matter what language you say it in, love is at the core of God's existence. And what good is love if there's nothing to love on? And so at some point in eternity past, God decided he wanted to exercise his love. Maybe he was a little bit lonely. I don't know. Unfulfilled. I mean, I'm pushing things, but I'm guessing in some way he was, right? In Psalm 89.2, it says in Hebrew, Olam chesed ibane. Olam chesed ibane. And translated correctly into English, it's the world is built upon God's radical love. The word chesed, we've taught on that word before. It's where in your Bibles it gets translated in a lot of different words, none the least, which is God's loving kindness or his mercy. It's the form of God's love that is radical, okay? Which means that if God um, built the world upon his love, it means that God created the universe, everything in it, because he is love. That's why he created the universe. 
He wanted something and someone to love on. And so in eternity past, God decided to write a huge, mega story. Genesis 1-1 is when God pushes the play button and his story, history, begins. Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew is Bereshit, bara Elohim, ve'et hashamayim, ve'et ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what a stage God set for his story to play out on, right? Filled with macro and microscopic mysteries that baffle our minds. A beautifully colored artistic earthly planet filled with a plethora of multifaceted plants and animals. And of course, the apple of God's creation eye the main characters and recipients of his everlasting love and devotion, us. All woven together in the longest running and most complex, and I might add, continually live epic tale ever written. All packaged together in a literary style known as a hero's journey. Live from planet Earth, it's the story of God, the story of us. And this hero's journey is filled with you know, lots of twists and turns and, and nail-biting events, and we wonder if it's ever going to end well, especially right now. But in this crazy love story, you and I are the heroines that will need to be rescued. Satan is the evil villain of the story that will need to be defeated, and God is the hero who will do both. And then we will ride off into the sunset with our hero to live happily ever after. The end? No. Not the end. Just a beautiful new beginning where there'll be no more struggles in life. No more failed relationships. No more diseases or disabilities. No more aging. No more poverty or homelessness. No more divisive political views. No more wars. No more pain of any kind. No and best of all, no more death. In eternity, God's radical chesed love will overwhelm us. It'll overwhelm us to such a degree that everyone who's there will live in perfect harmony together forevermore. Here at Cornerstone Boulder, we only tell one story. We don't tell two stories. We don't tell a Jewish story that ended and became a Christian story. We tell one beautiful, seamless love story from its explosive beginnings all the way to its climactic finale from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It's all one beautiful, seamless love story and of God's plan to build an eternal family for all those who will choose to live with him forever in his eternal kingdom. And as we tell this story, we, we try to discourage people from being distracted from all those smaller stories in life, which is so easy to do, especially in today's volatile environment. God's singular theme in this epic tale is to gather as many people as he can in this life so that he can lavish his love on them forever in the next one. 
And when we sync up our lives to this singular storyline, we then become partners with God to help build the kingdom of God right here on earth right now. And there's no better way to live life. So don't be distracted by counterfeit stories. There's only one legitimate story playing out in this universe. The story of God, the story of us. One story. Okay, the second way that we merge the Jewish and the Christian streams together into one stream here at Cornerstone is that we teach one context. Here's a question for you. What religion was all the authors of the Hebrew Scriptures? Jewish. Okay? I'll ask it rhetorically. You don't have to yell it out. Just relax. It's not a quiz. What is the religion of all the authors of the Christian Scriptures? Jewish. So then logically, what is the context of God's story? Come on, shout it out. Jewish, okay? When Jesus chose his first disciples, they were all Jewish. They were not looking to start a new religion, right or wrong. They simply believed that the Jewish Messiah had arrived. And once Jesus died and resurrected and then ascended back into heaven, these Jewish followers of Jesus decided to call themselves by the Hebrew name Haderech. Haderech, which in Hebrew, in English, simply means the way. And at that time, they viewed themselves, and they were viewed by the Jews back then as just another Jewish sect. Just as there are Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes. They just became another Jewish sect. And so when Rabbi Paul was arrested for causing a disturbance and speaking blasphemy, and he was brought before Felix to be tried, this is the argument he made about this newish Jewish sect in Acts 24. Verses 12 through 14. He says, My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you these charges they are now making against me. However, I do admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, Haderech, which they call a sect. And many theologians believe that this new Jewish sect took on this particular name either from the prophets who spoke about preparing the way for the Lord or from Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But in either case, Haderach was what they called themselves. In fact, you won't find one single verse in the Bible where these Jewish believers called themselves Christians. They were called Christians in Acts chapter 14, in Antioch. But they never called themselves Christians. And, this and they continued, they called, they called themselves followers of the way. And this continued uh, late into the first century and everything about this newest Jewish sect, the way they lived, the way they taught, the way they wrote all originated from a Jewish context, a Jewish worldview, and a Jewish culture. 
But over time, as, as more and more non-Jews came to faith in Jesus, the leadership eventually shifted from all Jewish to all Gentile. The center of Christianity shifted from Jerusalem to Rome. And by the fourth century, Christianity had become very anti-Jewish. And, the laws, and, and there were laws eventually passed, first at the Council of Nicaea, that banned any kind of Jewish expression within Christianity in the Western world. Expressions like observing the Sabbath or observing the feasts. Up until that time, there were hundreds and thousands of Jewish believers like myself living in the Western world. But from that time on and for the decades that followed, there was nothing appealing or recognizable in the church for a Jew. And so we don't see many Jews coming to faith in Jesus except those who were forced to convert in order to avoid expulsion or execution. And thousands upon thousands of Jews refused and were put to death. It's a really sad time in Christianity's history. And one of the many negative side effects of this anti-Jewish posture in the church is that we lost the only source of those who can interpret the scriptures in its proper Jewish context. That was a huge loss for the church. And in its place, we began to interpret the scriptures through the eyes of Roman and Greek culture. How on earth do you think we ended up with a white, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus who spoke with a King James accentuation? You know? For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And him that knocketh, it shall be opened. <laughs> the worst of it, though, was that by interpreting these great Jewish stories of the Bible through Roman and Greek lenses, we not only missed the proper context of a story, but we often came up with interpretations that were actually misleading and harmful. Let me just give you one example, okay? There's lots I could share, but I'm just going to give you one from Matthew chapter 16. In this chapter, Jesus takes his disciples to a place... Um, that was called back then Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, in Hebrew you'd say Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar, right? And his, oh, I forget the relationship to Philip, I think it was. Uh, I won't say it because I'll get it wrong. Okay. But he's related to Caesar. Uh, and it would have been about a day's journey from Galilee area from where Jesus and disciples lived to make it to Caesarea Philippi. I always take my tour groups to this site to teach at this very, uh, on this very subject. Believe me, it's totally worth the drive. It turns out to be a highlight for people. Before the Romans conquered Israel and changed the name of the city to Caesarea Philippi, it was called Pontus. Pontus, named after the, the mythological god Pan. Anyone familiar with Pan, study Greek or Roman mythology. Pan was a half-man, half-horse figure uh, who enjoyed hiding in the... One of the things he enjoyed, he enjoyed hiding in the bushes along um, frequently traveled paths. And then he would, he would instill fear into young maidens as they passed by by jumping out and playing his flute. We get the words pan flute and panic from this mythological character. 
Today, this is an Arab city in Israel called Banas, with a B sound, Banas, only because there's no P sound in Arabic. And so instead of the original name Panas, they call it Banas, um, connecting it back to its ancient name. And in this city is located a cave that was used to worship Pan. Here's a, a picture of it up on the screen. <clears throat> Desperate people would travel to this place to make an offering to Pan, hoping to find some relief for their desperation, whatever it was. And instead of traveling parallel to the ground, this cave travels straight down into the depth of the earth where it is believed it crossed into the dark netherworld of Hades or hell. And these desperate people would throw their offering into that cave, most of the time using a live animal, but sometimes using live children. That's how desperate these people were to come to this place. So with this desperate setting in view, let's read the story from Matthew 16. This is verse 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, but who do you? (laughs) Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, of course, jumps out there and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, without having Jewish eyes on this story, the early church, under the umbrella of Roman Catholicism, which is really the only religious game in town in the Western world back then, all the way up until the Middle Ages, eventually interpreted this passage to mean that Jesus was using this occasion. He went all the way to this spot to install Peter as the first pope of the church. And in so doing, Jesus created a hierarchy of power within the church where the Pope had absolute power and authority imputed to him by God. And sadly, this is how and when politics and religion merged and created a church power structure and the merging of politics and religion into a church power structure is never a good idea. Something our founding fathers had the wisdom to avoid once they left the church power structure behind them in England, and a lesson many Christians today might remind themselves of. What was the real Jewish lesson to be learned from this passage? Well, it comes from knowing why Jesus would take the time to travel with his disciples to such a far away and desperate place a place where some people were so desperate they would throw their kids 
into that cave. Jesus wasn't bringing his disciples all the way to this place of desperation to establish a, a government church power structural model. It makes no sense at all to come up with that interpretation. And he asked his disciples, well, but who do you say I am? Which is the most important question every person on this planet needs to answer. Who is Jesus? But you know, especially desperate people need to answer this question. And Peter answers saying, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Peter's Greek name means rock. Petra means rock. And so you can see how someone from a Greek and Roman culture would be thinking that the church is going to be built upon Peter, the rock. But the rock that Jesus is talking about here is not Peter. It's the rock that that cave is on. This place of desperation. This cave in Pontus had a name. In ancient days, the cave had a name. Can you guess what it was? It was called the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. And so when Jesus made this statement, he had this place in mind, a place of desperation, a place where desperate people are flocking to. But he also knew a place like this couldn't solve anyone's desperation. It was a counterfeit. It was a counterfeit source of hope created by the arch enemy, our arch enemy in the story, the evil villain, Satan. The gates of hell would not prevail against Messiah Jesus, the only legitimate source that could resolve desperation because the Messiah had shown up. And when Peter answers and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, he is making a rock-solid profession of faith in Jesus, which will lead to the resolution of anyone's desperation. At Caesarea Philippi, God wasn't establishing a church power hierarchy. He was establishing the only true foundation that his church would be built upon, a foundation built upon a profession of faith in Jesus. That's why he went so far with his disciples. And that's what you get when you apply a Jewish context to all the great stories of the Bible. And I hope some of you are saying, holy hummus, Gene. That's pretty amazing. Okay. The third and last way that we merge both testaments into one stream is we keep one calendar. And what I mean by that is the calendar that we keep here at Cornerstone observes both Jewish and Christian 
traditions. It's one of the best things that we do here. And we don't do this just to be original or trendy, although it is original and it is trendy. We do this because just as there is significant meaning for Christians in observing holidays like Easter and Christmas every year, when you do them right, right, when you observe them in their proper context, you make it not just about materialism or candy, there's a significant meaning for Christians, for us, in observing holidays like Passover and Sukkot, which we're going to celebrate in just a couple weeks. You're going to hear about it at the end of this message every year as well. If, if you're a Christian and you don't know about or haven't ever experienced this significance, then you're missing out on so much depth that can be gained by observing them. And let me just whet your appetite just a bit. Okay, Leviticus chapter 21 is a chapter that talks about the seven annual feasts. It includes the Sabbath in there, but I'm only talking about the Sabbath feast right now. And this is how this chapter begins in verse 1 and 2. This is a really important passage in Scripture. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And I want to just first point out, and, I, and please notice that these are God's feasts, right? These are the feasts of the Lord. How many of you believe in God and call him Lord? I'm assuming most of you do that. So then these are for you as much as they are for the Jewish people since we believe in the same God. But there's an even better reason why they're for us. The actual Hebrew word for the two words used in this passage, appointed festivals, is one Hebrew word pronounced moedim. Moedim literally means appointments or appointed times, and it carries a very mystical connotation that transcends merely an annual date on a calendar. I mean, Moabdim does refer to the annual dates of observance, but more importantly, it refers to the appointed time that God has established in the distant future when what these feasts represents will be fulfilled. A time when the promised Messiah would enter our world. That's when Jesus came. And here's a chart that I made. Hopefully we have the chart. Do we have that chart? Is it there? Not there? Ah, I love that. These are the seven annual feasts. And remember, I'm just whetting your appetite. Um, if you want to know more, you can either dig back in some of the archives or videos. You can get a hold of my book. I dedicate a whole chapter to this in connecting the dots. Or if you prefer Spanish, Uniendo los Puntos. So um, not yet in Chinese because I can't quite get that pronounced right. And we don't, we don't have the time to drill down on all of this, but... Let's just do what we can here. I want to briefly look at three of the first four feasts that take place in the spring. Why, why did God start the feast in the spring? Why? God never wastes anything, by the way. There's a purpose, there's a reason, and there's a season for everything. Spring follows winter. 
Winter is a time of, of when, when things go dormant and things die. It's a time of desperation in ancient times, as it still is in parts of the world today. Will we survive the winter? Will we have enough food? Will we be able to stay warm enough? But then spring arrives. And along with it, hope. Plants begin to emerge from the ground. Animals reproduce. We're going to make it. Everything's going to be okay. God chose spring for the first feast. What's the first feast? Passover. In Hebrew, it's Pesach. It's one of the, the, the feasts that we celebrate here annually. Most, if not all of our small group leaders, lead some kind of what's called a Passover Seder. Uh, we, have, we have a generation of children today who have been raised doing this who would be really ticked off if we didn't do a Passover Seder or a Sukkot party for that matter or have donuts on Hanukkah. What was Passover all about? It's a, it's, a, it's a holiday to remember, to, to remember God delivering the Jewish people out of bondage, out of slavery from Egypt. How did he do it? Well, he had them mark their doorposts with the blood of a perfect, spotless lamb. And if they did so, when the angel of death came to kill every firstborn son in Egypt... He would pass over. I love it that it's just so simple. Passover. That's how they lived. God chose spring. And he chose the observance of Passover. The observance of sacrificing that perfect spotless lamb. Whose blood provides life. As the occasion to have his son crucified, the Lamb of God. But it gets better because do you know when Jesus was crucified? Well, every year back in ancient times, they were crucified on the eve of Passover at a particular window of time from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. In the afternoon. When did Jesus take his last breath? Right in the middle of all that. As the lambs in the temple were being sacrificed for Passover, Jesus was being sacrificed on the cross. His blood. When we mark the doorpost of our hearts, the angel of death passes over us. And so when we do a Passover Seder, we connect the dots. Because there's nothing more important. The second uh, feast starts the next day. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's that all about? Well, unleavened bread, you don't have yeast. Um, And, you know, in Israel, as here in Jewish homes, they get rid of everything that has yeast. You know, soy has yeast. You just get rid of everything. It's this mad dash in the week just before Passover to make your house clean. Or in some cases, if you can afford to, you go to a hotel in Israel where they do that for you. (laughs) I love that. Yeast often is a synonym, a metaphor for sin. 
Jesus is buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just before the Sabbath starts, he's taken down off the cross, he's put into the cave, and he's buried. He is our sin. He who had no sin, right, as the scriptures say, became sin for us that we might become sinless. You see how this all fits together? But the third one is probably the most important one for us. The third one is called early first fruits. The only instructions in the Bible are this. You can read about it in Leviticus 23 if you want. The Jewish farmers were to take the first sprigs of grain, which probably would have been barley that time of year, as they're just coming out of the ground. So they're not harvesting big sheaths, right? They're harvesting just these little baby sprigs. You got to feel sorry for those baby sprigs, yes. And they're to take it to the priest at the temple mount, and he is to make a wave offering. And the idea behind the wave offering is that if God is able to bring these first sprigs out of the ground, he'll be faithful to bring the rest of the harvest later on, which would have taken place about 50 days later. Now, the only instruction on when to celebrate this was the day after the Sabbath that falls during Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what day does the Sabbath usually fall? Saturday. So the day after is what day? Sunday. Huh. Let's just transport ourselves back about 2,000 years, and let's just imagine these farmers coming to this one particular Sunday, which is the first day of the week in Israel. And, they, the far, and the priest makes a wave offering, and he says, if God is faithful to bring these first fruits out of the ground, he'll be faithful to bring the rest of the harvest later on. And all of a sudden, some crazy Jew comes running down the street saying, he's risen! <laughs> you think that would have got their attention? He's risen! It doesn't, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus being the first fruits. Paul is writing this with this feast in mind. But he says, but each in their own time, first, the first fruits, he says, you read it in, in 1 Corinthians 15 later on today. First, the first fruits, and then the rest later on. And I'm hoping now you're saying, well, Gene, how come I'm just hearing this now? I mean, a lot of you that have been coming here a long time, you've been hearing this for, for years here. But, but new people come, it's like, I've been a believer for like 40 years. I've never heard any of this stuff. Well, you've heard it now. And I hope that you find this meaningful because this is what we do here. We tell one story. We teach one context. And we keep one calendar here. And it makes us a very interesting and unique church. So let's transition to um, communion. If you have one of these fancy COVID communion cups. It's very tricky. I have a hard time. I 
can never do this, but there's a really thin piece of plastic on top, and if you get that, you'll find your reward is a communion wafer. If you screw it up like me, you get grape juice on you. But I want you to just connect the dots to this, all right? It was a Passover Seder that Jesus gave us this institution of communion, our common union together is Jesus, our faith in what his blood does for us, what his body broken does for us. He instituted this at a Passover Seder, the very holiday that foreshadowed his coming. By the next day, he'll be crucified between 2 o'clock and 5 o'clock when the lambs are being crucified. And what did he say? This bread, which would have been unleavened, right? Without yeast. This bread is my body. In other words, listen, this festival that you've been observing for hundreds and hundreds of years was a picture of what I would do for you. This wine, and it would have been real wine, is my blood poured out for you. Again, saying, it's always been a picture of what I would do for you. And why would God do this? What is the main theme of God's story? Love. God left the comfort of heaven because he wants you to know how much he loves you. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, while we didn't care about him. We didn't think about him. We didn't even want him. That didn't matter to him. He died for us anyways. That's how much God loves you. That's what these symbols represent. And when we take communion, this is what we're supposed to remember. What Jesus did for us. How much he loves us. This isn't just some ritual that you do and you do it mechanically. This is to get connected to the God who created you because he loved you and wanted to love on you and is doing anything and everything in his power to get your attention to let you know that nothing will stop him in that pursuit. So with that in mind, let's eat the bread. Let's drink the wine.